About a year ago, a student named Chris Wen spoke to us here on this podcast about how he improved his LSAT score to a 173 over the course of three years of mostly part-time studying. Today, I'm very happy to bring Chris back as an official seven-stage tutor to discuss with me strategies for logical reasoning by focusing on five questions from Prep Test 90, Section 4. Hello, and welcome to the Seven Stage Podcast. I'm J.Y. Ping, and on this episode, Chris and I will cover some commonly tested types of logic on the LR section of the test. We'll talk about flaws, we'll talk about causal versus conditional logic, and how the two are different, and we'll demonstrate some blind review strategies that we use with our tutoring students. I hope you find the discussion helpful. I have 7th-H tutor Chris here with me. Chris, welcome back to the podcast. Hi, it's, it's good to be here. I'm really excited to talk to you again, and it's it's been almost a full year since the last time we spoke. And back then, you were telling us about your LSAT study strategies and how you improved your score tremendously. But you know, it's been more than a year now, and you've been a tutor with us, and you've been teaching a lot of seven stagers in your official capacity as an official seven stage tutor. So I thought it'd be so much fun to get you back here and talk about some LR questions. We can totally nerd out and hopefully help some students out by showcasing our methodology of, of how to think about logical reasoning. Because one of the most challenging things students tend to find is that logical reasoning questions are so varied in subject matter and in reasoning. But actually, you know what? They're not. There are only certain types of reasoning that repeatedly show up. And we deeply believe that your ability to perform on LR is a function of how good you are at recognizing these patterns of reasoning that recur. So hopefully today, I picked out five questions from Prep Test 90. Hopefully today in our talking about these five questions, we'll showcase just what is so repetitive in logical reasoning. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm, I'm super excited to nerd out on these LSAT questions and uh, hopefully help some students on the way as well. Great. So again, this is from Prep Test 90. We're looking at section four. And the first question we're going to look at is question nine. And we call this a pointed issue disagreement question. The question stem reads, their statements commit Robin and Kendall to disagreeing over weather. So Robin is one of the speakers and he says some stuff and Kendall is another speaker and she says some stuff. So here, I'll just read out what Robin's claims are. So he says that archaeologists can study the artifacts left by ancient cultures to determine whether they are nomadic or sedentary if the artifacts were made to last rather than to be quickly discarded the culture was likely sedentary okay so that's robin's claims that's all he all he says just those two sentences so before we look at kendall's what are you thinking right now about what robin has said yeah so the first sentence kind of kind of says that these archaeologists can kind of figure out whether cultures are nomadic or sedentary so i'm kind of imagining like these kind of scientists trying to understand other cultures now with the with the second sentence it's almost like a way to figure out whether a culture is likely or sedentary, like the type of evidence that they use. And it looks like it's saying that if they were made to last, if they were made to be durable, the culture was sedentary, which almost also kind of implies and commits Robin to saying like the opposite, which is if a culture had artifacts that were made to be discarded, that were kind of cheap and not very high quality, it looks like Robin kind of most likely also has to be saying that that culture was nomadic. 
Oh, okay. So the second sentence says, if the artifacts were made to last, the culture was likely sedentary. So that makes sense to me, right? Like, I mean, you're you're talking about cultures at least hundreds of years old, right? I mean, if you got archaeologists involved, you're talking about cultures that are at least hundreds of years old. So yeah, we want to figure out some features about these cultures. Were you nomadic? Were you sedentary? What was your economic system, your religious system, political, whatever? But all we have is just scraps of stuff, artifacts left over. That's all we have. This is the evidence we have to figure this stuff out. So Robin is telling us, you know, if you figure out what kind of artifacts these are, figure out some features about these artifacts, that clues you in onto the features of the cultures. And in particular, she says, if the artifacts were made to last, like durable, the culture was likely sedentary. I guess that makes sense. You know, a sedentary culture, you're not moving around. You got your village, you got your settlements, you want to make stuff that's made to last. Maybe you can hand it off from generation to generation. But you're saying that Robin also says if the artifact wasn't durable, like made to be quickly discarded, then that means the culture was likely nomadic. Now, on first blush, that kind of sounds like a conditional reasoning error, doesn't it? Like, if you're saying, if durable, then sedentary, I thought we're not supposed to say, if not durable, then not sedentary. Isn't that something you're not supposed to do? Yes, the sentence has an if statement and it has a prompt to diagram. But at the same time, if you kind of read it, we are figuring out. So like essentially the quote unquote sufficient condition would be if this artifact was made to last versus made to be quickly discarded. And then we would get like the quote unquote necessary condition, which is the culture was likely or possibly sedentary, which doesn't seem too conditional, if that makes sense. And what you can actually imply from this conditional statement with a with the and kind of connected back to the to the first statement I think is that Robin has to be saying something on the lines that is more causal like making durable artifacts was what kind of caused them to be sedentary versus making quickly discarded artifacts causes the culture kind of to be nomadic So I think it's really good to pick up on the fact that Robin's mode of reasoning and what she's saying isn't conditional reasoning. It's causal reasoning. Now, how do you know that, right? That's the tricky part because, you know, in her second sentence, she literally uses the word, if artifacts were made to last, comma, the culture was likely sedentary. How many times have we translated something like that to a conditional A-R-O-B? The difficulty with a lot of what appears on this test is the difficulty of reasonable interpretation. What is the most reasonable interpretation of that second sentence? Is it to interpret what Robin is saying as a sufficiency necessity claim, if something, then something else? Or or is it more reasonable to interpret what she's saying, given the context of what she's talking about here, as a causal claim? And in this instance, the causal interpretation is the more reasonable interpretation. She's telling us that archaeologists want to find out whether these cultures are sedentary or nomadic, right? And how do they do it? They do it by looking at the artifacts. The artifacts is what clues us in onto whether the culture was sedentary or nomadic. Now, you know you're dealing with science, right? It's archaeology. You're not dealing in the realm of formal conditional logic. With archaeology, your conclusions aren't ever deductively valid. Your conclusions are only ever going to be, with some degree of certainty, we think this culture did this and this. We think this culture moved around. We think this culture didn't. And Robin's telling us that it's the artifacts that clue us in. So that's why we can interpret this claim. If the artifacts were made to last, that is, they durable, the culture was likely sedentary. So the durability of the artifact is a clue that the culture didn't move around so much. That's how we can infer from Robin's claim that on the flip side, if the artifacts were made to be quickly discarded, then the culture was likely to be 
nomadic. None of this is like the sufficiency necessity stuff where, oh, if something, then something else definitely has to be true. So I think that's probably one of the biggest hurdles to overcome. Otherwise, we'll see this when we get to the right answer choice. Otherwise, you're going to be repelled by the right answer choice for fear of making this like, oh, sufficiency necessity error that we warn about. Yeah, I think one of the skills that the LSAT tests on is specifically knowing when you need to use that conditional logic versus when you need to use just your understanding of the stimulus. And I think it really just depends on how the sentence structure is structured and like what you can really kind of tease out from it, if that, if that makes sense. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it certainly helps if you have a framework through which you understand the kinds of reasoning that could appear on logical reasoning. It's like conditional logic is just one type of logic that could appear. Far more common, you'll encounter causal logic. And that's what we're actually seeing here. That's far more common in logical reasoning is the reasoning of causation. Okay, so that's Robin's claims. Let's now move on to Kendall. So Kendall says, but what artifacts a people make is determined largely by the materials available to them. See, Kendall is telling a different causal story for how these artifacts came to be. Robin is telling the causal story of the type of culture as the main causal determination of the kind of artifact. Like nomadic cultures tend to make discarded quickly, to, like single-use items, right? Sedentary cultures tend to make durable objects. So if that's the causal story, that's how we can look at an object because those cultures are gone. All we have left are the objects. That's how we can look at the object and think, oh, you know, this object clues us in on what kind of culture that used to be. But only if you sign on to Robin's story. Kendall tells a very different causal story. According to Kendall, what's happening here? Yeah, so essentially Kendall is introducing an alternative cause to what could bring about these specific artifacts. So essentially for Kendall to bring this up, she kind of has to disagree with how the artifacts essentially came about, which is what caused the artifacts in the first place. Yeah, so according to Kendall, what determines yeah, Kendall basically just says that the determinant is whatever materials that that specific civilization or culture had at that time. So like if, it, if that was sand, it's, it's just going to be sand no matter what, no matter if it is discarded, is like durable or not. Yeah, right. Kendall is saying it's just the materials available to them determine the kind of artifacts that they make. So if a culture had access to sand, so they'll make whatever, transform sand to whatever. And if the culture had access to wood, they'll use wood to make some artifacts. If the culture had access to clay, they'll use clay to make artifacts. And, you know, those artifacts may be durable, maybe not. But it's about the kind of materials they had access to in the first place. So if Kendall's story is the story that you sign on to, causal story is the causal story that you believe, then when you're looking at an artifact, because again, these cultures are all gone. It's been hundreds of years, if not more. These cultures are all gone. All we have left are the artifacts. If Kendall's story is what you sign on to, you look at an artifact, then can you infer whether the culture was nomadic or sedentary? With what Kendall is saying, you can't really, if you're looking at the artifacts. Yeah. Specifically the artifacts. Yeah. Yeah. If you're just looking at the artifacts, it's not going to tell you whether the culture is nomadic. I mean, maybe you can still figure out, but you'd be looking at something else to figure that out. The artifacts wouldn't have much to say about it. But if Robin's causal story is the one that you sign on to, then looking at the artifacts would reveal to you what type of culture made them. So it is very important to get your causal story right. You know, this fight over the cause. Good. So I think we have a pretty good understanding of Robin's claims and Kendall's claims. Let's now look at the answers. And I just want to look at three answers, A, B, and C. We'll start with A. A says the distinction that Robin makes between two kinds of cultures is illicit. So basically, on first pass, when I was doing this under time conditions, I actually couldn't really parse out what this distinction was. Of course, yeah, we, yeah. we know now that the distinction is that Robin makes between the two cultures is whether the culture is nomadic 
or sedentary, right? But I was thinking like under time, oh, maybe this is, might be talking about the distinction between the artifacts and how the artifacts uh, were Whether right? it was durable or quickly discarded. Right, right. Or whether what essentially perhaps caused the artifacts, which is why oh, at first- that's another distinction, exa- right? Exactly. So, uh, which is why at, at first I, I left this open, but coming back to it, quickly realizing, reading it much more carefully and understanding the grammar, it is talking about specifically the distinction between nomadic versus sedentary cultures, which Keno doesn't really have an opinion about. Good, good, good. Yeah. So, okay, very important lesson out of this is we stress this over and over in our core lessons about how important grammar is to this test. Like, if you're just looking at the word distinction, I prompt you, hey, distinction, find me distinctions in what Robin and Kendall said. Well, you're going to come up with all sorts of distinctions. You know, like we said, nomadic versus sedentary, whether an object is durable or quickly discarded, or even the causal story. Kendall and Robin tell two different causal stories. So that's a distinction, right? So there are tons of distinctions. But the way answer choice A uses that word is that the distinction that Robin makes between two kinds of cultures, that narrows it down to just the distinction between nomadic and sedentary, because that's the only distinction that Robin makes between two kinds of cultures. We got, on the one hand, nomadic culture, on the other hand, sedentary culture. So, good. Very good reminder of just how powerful grammar is. And then, for the rest of the analysis, that distinction is illicit. Well, Robin obviously doesn't think it's illicit. She's the one that makes that distinction. And I don't think Kendall thinks it's illicit. Kendall's not like saying, no, no, what are you talking about? There's no such thing as nomadic cultures or sedentary cultures. I mean, Kendall, you know, doesn't say much about it. And I think if, if anything, Kendall would maybe agree even. So, sorry, not agree, but like disagree that the cultures are, like the distinction is illicit. Disagree that the distinction is illicit. Oh, right, 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 yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah. Because it just seems silly, right? It seems like, of course, there are different types of cultures and nomadic versus sedentary is a major distinction, major type difference between Asian cultures. So like, why would anybody disagree with that? Yeah. And, and really what she is getting at is the is the second sentence. Right. It's the second sentence about what the artifact is evidence of. Yeah, good. So we're not going to go for A. Let's look at B, which says they disagree over whether it is reasonable to assume that a culture whose artifacts were not durable was nomadic. Yeah, so essentially B is basically saying that if we have a culture that has artifacts that were cheaply made or not durable, that culture was nomadic, which Robin, I think, with the statements that Robin is saying, kind of is committed to agreeing to that versus what Kendall is saying, how she is kind of saying that there is a different alternative cause to the artifacts being made is more on the lines of disagreeing with that specific statement. Right. So on, on Kendall, you know, she says explicitly if an artifact was durable, then it's sedentary. So on the basis of that, we already discussed that because this is a causal claim, we do get to infer that if the artifact was made to not be durable, then likely that culture was not sedentary or in this case, nomadic. So that's why Robin would agree that it's reasonable to assume a culture that had non-durable artifacts was probably nomadic. But Kendall tells a very different causal story for what brought those artifacts to existence. And that's why Kendall will be like, no, I don't think so. Just because you found some artifacts that were not durable, don't infer from that that the culture was therefore nomadic. Weren't you listening? I already explained that what determines the kinds of artifacts is just the materials that they had access to, not the type of civilization that they were. So that's why Kendall would probably not agree to this. So that's what makes B the right answer, because you got one person agreeing, one person not agreeing. And that's what we're looking for for pointed issue disagreement questions. Yeah, absolutely. And I think something that might make B not attractive to a student possibly is kind of how, and they do this for a lot lot of disagree agree questions it's not exactly what kendall is saying if that or like it's not exactly explicitly that she's talking about non-durable artifacts and i think that sometimes will lead students to be like oh kendall has no opinion 
about this specific thing. But at the same time, it's like what can be implied from Kendall's statements that is what we need to look at. It's almost you got to be like a little between the lines and, and read kind of between the lines to get that implication. For example, like if Kendall had an opinion about all animals, she would also have an opinion about a dog because a dog's also an animal, if that makes sense. It's kind of the same thing here. If Kendall has an opinion about the durability of some items and what causes the artifact's existence, she's going to have an opinion about non-durable items and kind of what the causal factors that make an item not durable and makes that not durable item kind of relate to whether you are nomadic or sedentary. Yeah, that's really good. I, I do think it was intentionally designed, this correct answer choice was intentionally designed to get people to eliminate it, precisely because Kendall said nothing about durability and nomadic or sedentary. So students read B, and then, well, Kendall doesn't have an opinion on it. That's only at the very, very surface level, textual, explicit processing of what Kendall has said. And that's not deep enough, because Kendall is not saying her claims in a vacuum. No, she is saying her claims in a conversation with, in response to Robin's claims. So given that that's the context, the reasonable way to interpret what Kendall is saying is that she's having a disagreement with Robin over the causal story of what brought those artifacts to existence. And then that's the conversation we've already had, which I won't rehash here. But that's why she ultimately would disagree with the claim made in Answer Choice B. Let's look at one last answer choice, C, which says any evidence other than the intended durability of a culture's artifacts can establish conclusively which of the two kinds of cultures a particular culture was. So I think there's there's some heavy lifting just in terms of grammar before we can even talk about whether C is right or wrong. Just like, what in the world is C even saying? I'll just repeat that again. Any evidence other than the intended durability of a culture's artifacts can establish conclusively which of the two kinds of cultures a particular culture was. Kind of translating this sentence to understand it, basically any evidence that doesn't have to deal with durability of an object or a culture's artifacts will 100% establish whether that culture was sedentary or nomadic in the first place. But honestly, when I was reading this under time, I immediately stopped reading after when it reads any evidence other than the intended durability of a culture's artifacts. Immediately, I'm stopping to stop reading because it's like none of either Robin's or Kendall's arguments imply anything about evidence other than evidence that talks about durability. And because I can't really imply anything about that, it's an immediate no opinion for Robin and Kendall. Yeah, good. No, because they only talk about artifacts. Like, they only talk about artifacts. So C is trying to say, I don't want to look at artifacts. They gross me out for whatever reason. I just want to look at some other evidence. It's really abstract. And this is a trick that test writers use over and over again. Abstraction. They don't tell you what non-durable artifact evidence they're talking about. So you have to, I mean, when we get over this trick, any kind of abstraction is just to bring it down, make it tangible, come up with some examples. So think about archaeology, think about, you know, ancient civilizations. You're trying to figure out if this ancient culture was a sedentary culture or no culture. And I'm telling you, you don't get to point to artifacts as your evidence. You have to point to something else. So, okay, one way to do it is maybe you look at, I don't know, you look at what other cultures have said about them. That's like written rec record evidence. That's not artifact. It's just what's recorded in, in history books. So maybe some other culture writes about how this culture roamed around from time. So, okay, so that's probably evidence of nomadic. Or you can look at, I don't know, what, what else is in an artifact? Maybe like ruins of cities. Actually, now I'm out of my depth because I'm not sure if that counts as <laughs> <Yeah>. artifacts. <laughs> but anyway, the point is, the point is not for you to be right or wrong, you know, substantively. The point is, this is the technique. This is the technique of how to make something that's abstract a bit more tangible. So you can actually engage with what C is saying. And once you do that, hopefully you'll see how just irrelevant C is. Neither of them has any opinion, really, on whether some other type, some other category, some other class of evidence can be conclusive. 
Yeah, and absolutely. That's it. That's, the, that's as far as it goes for C. Yeah, and the coming up with the example thing is, is something I use all the time when I'm dealing with really abstract stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is where, you know, it kind of segues into reading comprehension as well. The more broad your subject matter knowledge is, the easier it will be for you to translate these abstract ideas and concepts into something tangible and specific. So that's why you often hear when you're studying for the outside, you often hear the advice of like, oh, just read science magazines, popular science magazines, read, I don't know, do a little bit of reading on like arts. So you have some knowledge of arts. So that way, (laughs) you're not at a complete loss when they talk about some brand new subject matter. Great. So this is this is really good. Let's move on to the next question now, which is question 14. This is a strengthening question, and this is also a question that trades in causal logic much more explicitly this time than the question we just looked at. So question 14, the question that asks us to strengthen the psychologist's argument. So the psychologist says, most people's blood pressure rises when they talk, but extroverted people experience milder surges. Surge here is referencing the blood pressure rise. So extroverted people experience milder surges when they speak than introverted people. So everybody's, or sorry, not everybody, I overstated. Most people's blood pressure rise when they talk, but extroverts compared to introverts, extroverts rise a little bit less. Introverts really, their blood pressure really goes up when they talk. For whom, and this whom is referencing the introverted people, for whom speaking is more stressful. Makes sense, you know, introverts, a little more stressful. This suggests that, now here comes the conclusion. This suggests that, that's your conclusion indicator. This suggests that the increases result from the cycle logical stress of communicating rather than from the physical exertion of speech production. Okay, so that's interesting. Chris, how do you think about an argument like this? So first of all, the thing I'm always doing with every single argument is like, okay, if I accept the premises as true, does that make the conclusion true or not? So it's always accepting the premises and kind of questioning the conclusion. So kind of like the conclusion that's happening here, this suggests that the blood pressure increases result from the stress of communicating rather than from the physical exertion of actually talking, kind of like the exercises or like the motions that you do when you're talking. It kind of sounds like we are trying to infer that the cause is stress or like that's what the argument's trying to do, like psychological stress of being an introvert or an extrovert, not necessarily and saying it's it's not this other thing, which is the actual physical exertion or the exercise, I guess, that you get from actually talking. Yeah, yeah, no, very good, very good. Yeah, so I think the argument, this particular argument is set up in a way where it lends itself to the kind of analysis that we find ourselves doing a lot when we deal with strengthening or weakening or evaluate questions that trade on causal logic, right? The psychologist sets up her premises as just a set of phenomenon. Just stuff that happens. Here's what happens. Most people's blood pressure rise. Oh, but you know what? Extroverts, their blood pressure doesn't rise as much as introverts. Their blood pressure rises more. And from this set of facts, you know, what we call collectively a phenomenon, we come up with a hypothesis that tries to explain this phenomenon. This is exactly also what we see in plenty of most, if not all, RRE questions are set up like this. The stimulus just gives you a set of facts. And then the correct answer choice is the answer choice that correctly explains the set of facts, right? So here, the psychologist is like, hmm, interesting. Introverts, blood pressure rises a lot. Extroverts, blood pressure doesn't rise as much. And then something that she also says is that, you know, what else is true about introverts is that when they speak, they're under more stress, right? It's more stressful for introverts to speak than it is for extroverts to speak. Okay, so there you have something that might explain the blood pressure rise, the psychological stress. Introverts do experience more stress than extroverts do. So maybe it is the psychological stress that causes the introverts rise. And so she jumps the gun and she says, ah, let me conclude now. It's definitely the psychological stress that causes blood pressure rise. It has nothing to do with physical exertion of speech. 
speech. That's not a causal component. So that hypothesis could be true, could be false. Our job is to make it better. But to make it better, you have to recognize where it's weak. Where it's currently weak is that we have no idea if physical exertion has any causal impact at all on blood pressure, right? Like, what do we know about the difference in physical exertion between extroverts and, and introverts? You know, you examine the phenomenon again, the set of facts, you know, what we call collectively the premises. There's just silence, right? There's silence. I mean, you and I are speaking people. So we know that speaking involves physical exertion. Like I'm moving my lips, I'm moving my mouth, I'm breathing. You know, maybe your hands are gesticulating, right? Like maybe you're getting animated. And so there's definitely physical exertion involved. But what's the difference in physical exertion between introverts and extroverts? We have no idea. Okay, so then I think that's really good. If you get to this level of analysis, that's really good because you've already made this question less unique, right? You've already sort of taken this question and like, you know what? You look like a star shaped question. I can, I can fit you into this mold here along with all those other star shaped questions that I've done in the past. That's what improvement in logical reasoning looks like is your ability to identify these recurring patterns. But there's still another trick hidden in this question and it has to do with how subtle the correct answer choice is worded. So the correct answer choice is D, which says deaf people experience increased blood pressure. And I'm not going to keep reading because I think <laughs> yeah. realistically, a lot of people would have already stopped reading after deaf people, like people can't hear, they experience increased well like you just want to move on you're like deaf people right like what's the logic here so it's like and i hear this all the time in tutoring sessions as well like we didn't even talk about deaf people my kind of counter to that is hold on a second we're still needing to introduce evidence in some way to kind of like affect the conclusion strength, right? It doesn't necessarily matter if we don't talk about any of these things. We just need to accept them as true still and essentially kind of plug it into the argument and see if it makes the conclusion more likely to be true or not. This is kind of why I think for weakening questions, strengthening questions, things that you're introducing new evidence into the argument, I'm usually always reading until the end because some way, somehow, like sometimes they can throw additional evidence in that I would have never thought about that would affect the argument in some way versus like most strongly support must be true questions where they kind of do have to talk about what is in the stimulus, I would probably be much more likely to eliminate faster for those. Yeah, very good. It's, again, important to recognize the kind of logic that the argument relies on. Here, once again, it's causal logic. And it's causal logic in a way that almost reminds you of designing an experiment to tease out what is the real cause. Like, we already talked about how the reasoning in the argument has this big hole in it. They want to conclude, the psychologist wants to conclude that physical exertion has no causal impact on blood pressure increase. But there's no evidence for it at all, because none of the premises mention physical exertion. Like, it would be great if, for example, we had additional information that extroverts, when they talk, they physically exert a ton, right? They're just jumping up and down, waving their hands and arms around, lots of physical exertion. Whereas introverts don't. Introverts kind of like are pretty still and don't move around very much. If you had that difference between extroverts and introverts, you might say physical exertion doesn't cause your blood pressure to increase. In fact, maybe you, you might want to examine if physical exertion caused your blood pressure to decrease yeah. right? because extroverts actually have lower blood pressure, right? Or better evidence, really, would just be that, you know what? Extroverts and introverts exhibit no distinction, no categorical distinction in physical exertion. Some extroverts move around, but some introverts also move around. Some extroverts are still, some introverts are also still. And, you know, if you compare the groups, there's just no difference in their physical exertion. Yet, we still observe a difference in their blood pressure. That's really good evidence that physical exertion doesn't cause a blood pressure increase. But that's just one way to get at that. That's just one way. That's not the only way you can get at that causal relationship. So this is where D is really tricky. So 
here, let me finish reading D. And Chris, maybe you can tell us where D does plug in. So D says, deaf people experience increased blood pressure when they sign, but no change when they move their hands for other reasons. So the first part of that sentence, when deaf people sign, basically, that kind of leads me to think, wait a second, this is their way of communicating. So like just how people... Uh, By the way, actually, sorry, just to interject here, reasonable interpretation is always king. You're never going to get around reasonable interpretation. Not on the LSAT, not in law school, not in life. Okay, so you can make an argument that when D says deaf people experience increased blood pressure when they sign, as in when they sign a checkbook, but that's a pretty weak argument. That is not a reasonable interpretation. The more reasonable interpretation is that deaf people experience increased blood pressure when they sign means that sign is in sign language, as in when they're communicating, as in the analog of when non-deaf people speak. That's just the more reasonable interpretation of D. Yeah, absolutely. I think on the LSAT, I am trying to make answer choices, like connect with the stimulus. So like, I'm trying to think of, I could have thought of sign as in sign a check, but like, when I'm trying to make the answer choices, at least try to interact or uh, with the argument at all, that's where the communication can really come in. It's kind of like, okay, wait a second, what if this is the way that they communicate kind of thing? Oh, wait a second, now I'm going to be able to kind of connect this more with the argument. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you want to make sure you're engaging with the strongest version of the answer choice. We're, we're not saying you, you have to make unwarranted assumptions to change the answer choice. All we're saying is that if there is ambiguity in what the interpretation of a claim is in an answer choice, if truly there is ambiguity, I don't think this even rises to that level. I don't think this, this answer choice is ambiguous. I was just playing devil's advocate trying to like make it ambiguous. But anyway, if it were ambiguous, truly ambiguous, then you have to give it the best interpretation. Give it the interpretation that'll make the argument the strongest version of itself and then deal with that version. Because otherwise, you would be engaging in what, this is actually a logical reasoning flaw, you'd be engaging in straw manning. You would not be dealing with the actual version of the claim. But anyway, okay, so let's go back to D. So deaf people, when they're communicating through sign language, they do experience increase in blood pressure. But then when they move their hands for other reasons, like for example, chopping up vegetables, right, when they're cooking, there's no change in blood pressure. So how does that matter? This is kind of exactly getting at a way to interact and strengthen the argument, kind of like with the fact that you gave previously, JY, but essentially in another way, which is when they communicate, when deaf people sign, the stress is involved. But when deaf people don't communicate and they're just moving their hands for physical exertion, nothing's happening. So with that in mind, plugging in D as additional evidence, it does make the conclusion just a little more likely to be true. Yeah. Now you could argue, well, hold on, deaf people are different from non-deaf people. Even if for deaf people, you can draw the conclusion that the physical exertion involved in communicating isn't what causes a blood pressure to rise. And I think you can make that conclusion because D does give us the elements, at least the core elements of a controlled experiment. You got deaf people moving their hands for chopping vegetables, and then you have deaf people moving their hands for sign communication. And it's only in the latter that they have a blood pressure increase. So it's probably not the physical exertion. Because if it was a physical exertion, you'd expect to find blood pressure increase in both situations, but you don't. So that's why it is pretty good evidence that, at least for deaf people, it's the psychological stress associated with communicating that causes the blood pressure to rise. Now, you you could say, okay, fine, but that's for deaf people. How do we know that this analogously carries over to non-deaf people? And that's a legitimate counter. That is totally illegitimate. You know, the only response is more research has to be done. We don't know. But you're also setting the bar too high. You're also setting the bar too high. They're not saying make this argument valid. They're just saying the question is 
time it's just saying most strengthen the psychologist's argument. Right. And that's a thing that in tutoring sessions happens a ton as well. It's like students are trying to make the conclusion 100% valid and will be like, okay, wait a second, this doesn't. But I would counter back with you are absolutely right. It doesn't. But we're just trying to make the conclusion just a little more likely to be the case, which D does. He does. Yeah. yeah. And, it's, does. and it's the same thing with, with weakening questions as well. We're not trying to wreck the conclusion, but just make it a little less likely the case. Yeah. I, I think what happens is that for a lot of questions that are easier, like this question that we're talking about, question 14, is rated four stars out of the five-star difficulty rating system. So that's on the harder end of the spectrum. I think what happens is in a lot of the one-star, two-star weakening, strengthening questions, you know, the correct answer choice precisely does, if it's weakening, just utterly obliterate the argument. And the correct answer for strengthening does like just 100% improve the reason. So you kind of get trained up to think that, oh, this is what weakening answers do. This is what strengthening answers do. But it's not. It's I mean, it could. You, I mean, if I set the bar here at 50 and you give me 85, great. You know, you did a bunch of extra work. But it doesn't change the fact that the bar is still at 50. And the next time you see an answer choice that's 51, you better still pick it. You can't be like, oh, wait, 51. I'm used to getting 85s and 92s and 73s, right? 51 isn't big enough. No, the, the bar is where it is. It doesn't matter that a lot of the right answers overshoot the bar. And they could have made answer choice D so much easier if they didn't say anything about deaf people and they were just talking about people in general. But to modulate the difficulty of the these questions, they're going to make these specific questions hard by introducing deaf people instead of like the general public. Right, right. And there's so many ways that they could have given us an answer choice that strengthens the reasoning. Like I already talked about how it would be great if they talked about this differences between extroverts and introverts in terms of physical exertion when they speak. That would be the most direct and kind of what you might expect to find if you were trying to anticipate the right answer choice, which I think this actually also speaks to why I am very, very hesitant to tell students to try to anticipate the correct answer choice for yeah. strengthening and weakening questions, especially questions that use causal logic. It's just There's just too much out there in the world, right? There's too much that the outside writers can draw yeah, upon. Yeah, absolutely. It really is a double-edged sword sometimes because I think when students sometimes anticipate what they're doing is almost pigeonholing themselves into, okay, I need to find this specific answer choice where there could be so many that weaken or strengthen. Yeah, that's right. I think, again, it's about just like in the previous question, we talked about the skill of knowing when to translate a sentence into conditional logic, right? You can be over and under on that, right? You cannot do it enough. That's something we see that happen pretty frequently where the test writers are communicating sufficiency necessity relationships, conditional relationships, but they just won't use those explicit indicators, right? Because they want you to realize, oh, this, even though there's no if or only if present, it's still conditional. So that's the underside. You can be over, which we saw, right? In the previous question, they said if, but you don't want to translate that into conditional because it's not conditional. Here, it's similar. There are entire categories of LR question types where it does pay a lot to anticipate, to get at what the right answer might say. I'm thinking of PSA questions. I'm thinking of SA questions, sufficient assumption questions. I'm thinking of a lot of must-be-true questions you can do this. A lot of even MSS questions you can do this. Certainly, you can do this for main point questions. I'm sure there are others, but like I, I think for strengthening, weakening, evaluate questions, especially the ones that deal in causal logic, it is very, very difficult to try to get ahead of the test writers. Yeah, and it's, it's much more, uh, I think, to your benefit to not really anticipate more of just like have almost a vague anticipation oh it's probably something causal happening here and going in with an open mind really to see oh they can talk about deaf people and it can still strengthen 
Yeah. But I think as with most of these skills where it takes judgment to calibrate how much you're over or under, you're going to make mistakes. I don't know of any other way around it. So whatever you're doing, try the opposite, right? If you yeah. never try to anticipate the correct answer, try to always anticipate the correct answer. See what happens. You'll learn from that experience. Knowing what it's like, you know, I, I talk about on logic games, right? Splitting the game board versus not. Okay. Yeah. Definitely practice games where you're supposed to split the game board. That'll help you figure out when to split the game board. But you know what will also help you figure that out is to split the games that you 100% should not be splitting. As in like games that have like 30 worlds. You definitely shouldn't be splitting those games, but do it anyway because that'll help you. Those negative examples will also help you as much as the positive examples help you figure out when you should do it. Yeah, absolutely. Let's move on and look at question 16, which is a weakening question. And here the journalist says, when judges don't maintain strict control over their courtrooms, lawyers often try to influence jury verdicts by using inflammatory language and by badgering witnesses. These are obstructive behaviors, obviously, and they hinder the jury's effort to reach a correct verdict. And here comes the conclusion. Therefore, whenever lawyers engage in such behavior, it is reasonable to doubt whether the verdict is correct. Okay, so that's the argument. Chris, what do you, what do you think about this? When reading the premises, specifically the second one, it says that these obstructive behaviors hinder the jury's effort to reach a correct verdict. But all of a sudden, specifically because of exactly what the word hinder means, that doesn't necessarily imply that if you hinder something, it would make that thing not happen, if that makes sense. So we're not necessarily sure if obstructive behavior will make you reasonable to we'll doubt. Will make it reasonable. Yeah, will make yeah, it to reasonable doubt. to doubt uh, whether the verdict is, is correct. Just because you hindered it doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to do it. Right. Because, you know, you're trying. Like, it's clear what the intent is. These lawyers that act up, that use inflammatory language and badger witnesses, of course, they're trying to get the jurors to sway the jurors to their side, right? And so the premise says that it hinders the jury's effort to reach a correct verdict because these are not the kind of things that you want the jury to take into consideration when they're trying to figure out the truth, right? You, you don't want the jury to think about the inflammatory language the lawyer used. You, you don't want to think about, you don't want the jury to think about how the lawyer badgered the witness. These are irrelevant. They are noise. They're not signals. So that's why the journalist says that this obstructive behavior hinders the jury's effort. But just because the lawyer tried to mess up the jury's deliberation doesn't mean that the lawyer succeeded. So that's why the conclusion doesn't necessarily follow that. It's, oh, well, then it's reasonable to doubt the veracity of the verdict. So that's very good. This is like where a lot of training in LR, you learn to really zero in on the gap between the premises and the, and the conclusion. Let's take a look at some of the answers, starting with answer choice A that says, court proceedings overseen by judges who are very strict in controlling lawyers' behavior are known to result sometimes in incorrect verdicts. Right off the bat, the first part of the sentence talks about court proceedings overseen by judges who are strict in controlling lawyers' behavior, whereas the stimulus was talking about court proceedings or judges who don't maintain strict control over their courtroom. So it's already talking about two different subsets of groups, which, which already kind of makes A irrelevant to the argument. Yeah, that's right. I think that's the strongest reason to eliminate A is to realize that in the stimulus, the journalist isn't concerned about the world that A is concerned about. The journalist is concerned about the world in which judges are loose, where lawyers take advantage of the judges being loose and act up. And then we're saying in, in that type of trial, what happens? Is it reasonable or is it not reasonable to question the veracity of the verdict? A's like, okay, yeah, I'm going to talk about something different. I'm going to talk about trials where judges are really strict. Lawyers don't get to act up. You know what? In that subset of world, verdict can also be wrong. I mean, yeah, but what does that have to do with what we're talking about, right? It's, it's not like we ever assume there's only one way for juries to mess up their verdicts. 
it could be specifically that judges who don't maintain strict control and, and have loose control over their courtrooms have the very same number of incorrect verdicts as well, which kind of, again, like just makes A irrelevant. Yeah. Okay. So A doesn't work. Let's now look at D, which says obstructive courtroom behavior by a lawyer is seldom effective in cases where jurors are also presented with legitimate evidence. Okay. Interesting. Legitimate evidence was not talked about in the stimulus. So what is your reaction to D? My first reaction to D would be essentially breaking down what are the possible worlds of evidence that a courtroom has. So the worlds that we have, we have three worlds. It's like we have the world where there is illegitimate evidence and only illegitimate evidence. We have a second world where there is kind of a mixture of both legitimate and illegitimate evidence. And then we have this third world where we only have legitimate evidence. And I think specifically understanding, okay, if I was in one of these three worlds, what specifically would happen? And I think if you look at the world where there is only illegitimate evidence in a courtroom, we can kind of make the common sense assumption that that's just not going to happen. It's like that specific logical world doesn't matter in this instance, because if you kind of think about it, courtrooms with illegitimate evidence, the case is just going to be thrown out, really. So it doesn't really matter what the verdict is for those specific cases, because the, the case is already thrown out. Whereas the worlds that do matter, where they do have legitimate evidence in the specific courtrooms, we can see that D also says that obstructive courtroom behavior by a lawyer isn't even effective at all. If you kind of plug that in, that would make the conclusion a little less likely to be the case. Yeah, I think D is really, really strong where it says obstructive courtroom behavior by a lawyer is seldom effective. Like D will be such a no-brainer answer if that's all it said. If it just said obstructive courtroom behavior by a lawyer is not effective. Well, fantastic. Great. We pick it. That weakens the argument because that was one of the core assumptions that we picked it up. Students pick this up. They see hinder. They think, oh, just because it hinder doesn't mean that it's reasonable doubt because you also have to assume that their hindering efforts are successful. And D comes in and just tells you, you know what? It's not effective. But I think what makes D really tricky is where they tagged on the second half of it, where they limit that ineffectiveness to situations where jurors are also presented with legitimate evidence. So D, rephrased, says, oh, in trials where jurors get legitimate evidence, in that set of worlds, obstructive behavior is not effective. That that makes D tricky because now you're thinking, wait a second, the stimulus didn't say anything about whether we're in that world. The trials that the journalists are talking about didn't mention evidence, didn't mention illegitimate, illegitimate, didn't mention anything about evidence. So don't, don't we have to assume that the trials that the journalist is talking about are trials where the jurors got presented with legitimate evidence? Yeah. And the answer is, yeah, you do. Actually, you you absolutely need to make that assumption. So then, of course, the objection is, wait, I thought we weren't supposed to make assumptions. You know, how, how can we make this assumption? Well, the response to that is that you can make reasonable assumptions, right? And that's what, what you said is the argument for why that is a reasonable assumption to make, right? And it really is a reasonable assumption to make. Right. Because what are your choices, right? You're really going to think, you're really going to assume that our legal system system is one where juries are presented only with not legitimate evidence. You really think that's reasonable to assume that? That's crazy. Like there are all sorts of procedural rules. And, you know, if you're talking about criminal cases, prosecutors won't even charge anything if they don't have enough evidence. And civil cases, there are tons of rules in place to make sure that it never gets to the trial stage unless you have enough evidence. Yeah. Right. There are motions for dismissal for, for lack of evidence. So it is totally unreasonable to assume that the journalist is contemplating courtroom situations where there's no legitimate evidence. You know, I, th I think in fact, if anything, it's, it's like, 
almost so basic, so common sense of an assumption that they didn't feel like they needed to say it. Now, I know, you know, that sounds like it's kind of unfair, right? And I do think it is unfair. If you've never thought about this stuff, it's not going to be commonsensical. But if you do stop and think about it for a second, hopefully the argument that I just said, you know, that Chris also just said in the last like three or four minutes makes sense about why it is totally reasonable to make that assumption. Yeah. And that's exactly another reason why I try to try my best to keep an open mind, especially with weakening and strengthening questions, because the LSAT loves to introduce these reasonable common sense assumptions, specifically in these types of questions uh, a lot. Yeah, yeah, totally. It's how they dial up the difficulty on certain questions. They, they give you these right answers that, you know, in order for you to realize that they're right, you have to connect it to the argument. And in order to connect it to the argument, you do need to supply an assumption, but it always turns out that the assumption is reasonable. All right, so let's move on to the next question, which is uh, question 18, and this is a flaw question. So here we have our author, author's name is Lindsay. Lindsay says, several people claim that our company was unfair when it failed to give bonuses to the staff. Perhaps they recalled that the company had promised that if it increased its profits over last year's, the staff would all get bonuses. However, the company's profit was much smaller this year than it was last year. Clearly, then, the company acted fairly. Interesting. Okay, so we know that the reasoning is flawed. But the crucial question, of course, is why the reasoning is flawed. The conclusion is that the company acted fairly, and the reasoning is what it is. So what do you think, Chris? Yeah, so the second sentence here, I think, does introduce a conditional statement. If profits were increased over last year, then the staff would get bonuses. But the second sentence kind of goes in and says that, okay, wait a second, but profits weren't increased over last year. But that's essentially denying the, the, the sufficient condition. There could be other ways that we could essentially, that the staff would get bonuses, not just because the profits increased that we don't necessarily know about that Lindsay didn't really mention. Right. I think it is really important to look at the specific language of when they tell you these rules, right? Here, specifically, Lindsay said perhaps they recalled, they meaning the people who think it's unfair, they recalled that the company had promised that if the company profits increase over last year, the staff would all get bonuses. Okay, so was that rule triggered? Did the company's profit increase over last year? No, it didn't. All right, well, then according to this rule, nothing happens, right? You don't get the result because you didn't trigger the rule. Okay, but see, another crucial question is, is that the only rule that governs whether staff get bonuses? I mean, the truth is we don't know, right? Nothing Lindsay said. She didn't say anything explicit about this. There's nothing implied about it. So we just don't know. Now, there are only two logical possibilities. Either it is or it isn't. If this is the only rule that governs staff bonuses, well, then failing to trigger this rule does amount to, sorry, staff, you don't get bonuses because this was the only rule that governed. But maybe it's not. Maybe there are other ways. Maybe if I don't know, just make stuff up, right? Like you can think of it as a company, like there are all sorts of ways where staff could get bonuses. Maybe if you get better performance reviews, you'll get bonuses. Maybe, I don't know, whatever else, right? So we don't know if any of those other rules got triggered. But yeah, okay, so would you try to like anticipate what the correct answer might say here or would you, or what would you do at this point? So here I'm definitely thinking about, okay, hold on, wait a second. What if there are other ways that we can trigger this, this statement to still get bonuses? That really is kind of all I'm thinking at this point. I think sometimes with flawed questions as well, they can word things in ways that like if we're if we're 100% thinking only, okay, sufficiency, necessity, flaw. Specifically in this sentence or, or in this answer choice, the correct answer choice here, they don't say anything about something sufficient or something necessary and using those explicit words, but it still implies it with understanding exactly what B is saying. It still says the exact same flaw. Right. Okay. So you mentioned B. Let's hear, let's take a look at B. That says, infers that an opinion is false merely because one potential reason for that opinion has been undermined. 
the first kind of steps that I'm doing for a flaw question is, is first asking myself if this answer choice is one, descriptively accurate first. So when I'm going through B, concludes that an opinion is false. Yeah, that looks pretty good to me. Specifically that the opinion that several people claim that our company was unfair. Now, and then it says merely because one potential reason. So I know what's coming up is kind of the premises that has to say the premises because one potential reason for that opinion has been undermined. And we do get that as well with the undermining of essentially the statement that the company's profits didn't increase. So like with step one, is this descriptively accurate? I think B is descriptively accurate. And two, it does get to that kind of, hold on a second, you denied the sufficient condition, only one potential reason, which is an an increase in profits will get you potential bonuses. But like, what if there are others that have been introduced that we don't know about? That's totally right. I mean, like the several people here who claim the company was unfair when it failed to give bonuses to the staff, you actually have no idea why they're claiming it's unfair. Yeah. Right? Like, what's their argument? Lindsay doesn't tell us. Lindsay only tells us that they claim it's unfair when they didn't go get bonuses. And then Lindsay says, perhaps they recalled. And here's the rule. If profits increase, they'll get bonuses. Profits didn't increase. So what? So while according to this rule, nothing, right? You don't get the bonuses. That could be the basis on which those people made the claim of unfair. If that was the basis, then I think Lindsay put them down pretty well. We don't know if that's the basis. Like we said, there could be tons of other reasons. Maybe these people are claiming the company is unfair because, you know what, company, you said if our performance reviews improve, we will get bonuses. Our performance reviews did improve, but you didn't get bonuses. So see, you're acting unfair. In which case, if that were the real story, now Lindsay's argument seems silly. Yeah. Yeah, so that's that's what B is trying to capture in this abstract way. Oh, an opinion is false merely because one potential reason has been undermined. And that's the flaw of the argument. Something else that kind of, I think, might catch students with B is the word opinion in B. Notice how in A, the word opinions also comes up here, but the way that they use opinions relies on the opinions of certain unnamed people without establishing that those people were well-informed. A doesn't happen, but like, it's almost like sometimes by association, oh, B also said opinion. So like, maybe B is wrong too. Oh, right, right. So you eliminate A because it says relies on the opinions of certain unnamed people without establishing that they're well-informed no matter. You're like, no, no, no. And then B also repeats the word opinion. So maybe you eliminate it because of that. Right. And I think sometimes that can catch students, but they're using the word opinion in a a different way in, in A and B. Absolutely. What are they saying in A? A is getting at some kind of flaw, but it's not this one. Right. So A is getting at opinions of experts or or like per- yes. perceived experts, right? But B is getting at the opinion, aka the conclusion. I think they could have made B a lot more easier if they just replaced opinion with like claim or, or something of that nature. But like they put they put opinion there for a reason, I think. I think that's a really good pickup moving from A to B. The test writers definitely try to prime you. They know you tend to read the answers in order, so they kind of prime you that way. See, A, this goes back to what we were talking about earlier about how it's really important to recognize the kind of reasoning that's operating. There is a kind of reasoning called an appeal to authority. When you reason by appeal to authority, you're on the spectrum of how reliable the authority is, right? You want to ask whether the authority that you're relying on has the relevant domain expertise. You also want to ask, well, how many people One authority is less authoritative than a consensus authority. That's more authoritative. And of course, it's on a sliding spectrum. If you want to figure out something about, I don't know, environmental science, I don't know, asking a PhD student is not as authoritative as asking some established scientist who's been working in the field for 30 years. And that's also not as authoritative as asking a collection of scientists. It's on this spectrum. But that's what A is talking about. But that has nothing to do with this argument, right? This argument is not an appeal to authority. So it's it's like you don't need to give the opinions any, any weight or not. 
But yeah, so I think it was really good. That totally captures a trap that they were laying out. Yeah, absolutely. Speaking of traps, <laughs> let's also look at D, which is a really popular wrong answer, which says confuses the size of a quantity with the amount by which that quantity has increased. So first of all, understanding what the size of a quantity is, I'm thinking perhaps like the size of the money of profits that they make, like the size of profits that they make. So let's say the company made a million dollars in profits or five million or $500,000 in profits, right? Okay, that's the size of the quantity, okay? Yeah, and confusing that with the amount by which that quantity has increased. So like if it went from, I'm sorry, did you say 100 million? I just made some numbers up. I don't even remember. <laughs> so if it went from 50 million to 100 million and that specific amount, which is 50, so confusing 50 million essentially with the quantity of 100 million. Right. So let's say last year, the company had profits of 100 million. This year, the company had profits of 80 million. So the, the size of the quantity, well, that depends on which year you're talking about. If you're talking about this year, it's 80 million. That's the size of the quantity. If you're talking about last year, the size of the quantity is 100 million. But if you're talking about the amount by which that quantity has increased, I guess here will be decreased. There's no increase. It will be 20. 20 is the difference. Right. And following step one, it's, that's just not descriptively accurate. It's just the argument, Lindsay is just not even doing that. So I'm not even asking if it's a flaw or not, if Lindsay doesn't even do it in the first place. That's exactly right. Yeah, she, she does not confuse the size of a quantity with change in that quantity. Okay, good. Let's see if we can squeeze in one last question here. The last question we're going to look at is question 23, which is also a flaw question. So here the author is an official who says six months ago, the fines for parking violations on the city streets were raised to help pay for the parking garage that had just opened. So that's already a lot of information. The city wanted to open a new parking garage. I guess, you know, you have to spend some money, investment and build it. And now you're trying to figure out a way to pay for it. So what do you do? You raise fines on parking violations as a way to collect money to pay pay for it. Fine. Official says, since then, parking violations on our streets have dropped by 50%. Therefore, if we want there to be even fewer parking violations, let's raise the fines again. I think what the official is trying to get at is that it's specifically the raising of the fines that made the parking violations decrease. Yes. Cause. The official is thinking that, you know, again, we, we talked about the framework of phenomenon hypothesis just a couple of questions ago. Here it's in full swing again. What do you actually see? What do you observe? What are the facts? The facts are six months ago we raised fines. And then what? And then parking violations dropped by a lot, by 50%. But that's not the only fact because let's not forget a new parking garage opened. Okay, let's let's hold on to that thought. But the city official is thinking, you know what? Six months ago we raised parking fines. Six months later, parking violation dropped by 50%. Hmm. I hypothesize, right? When you hypothesize what you're doing doing is you're drawing causal arrows between phenomena. You're telling a causal story. You're saying it's not just six months ago, fines on the violations were increased. And now six months later, parking violations down 5%, uh, sorry, 50%. You're saying those two things are causally related. Now, the official doesn't explicitly say this, but the official definitely assumes that it was the raising of the parking violation fines that resulted in, that caused the decrease in parking violations. But let's not forget what else happened. Yeah, so there was also a parking garage that just opened where they are. And it also introduces an alternative cause that, hey, because there's a parking garage now, there's more places to park. More legal places to park, places to park where you wouldn't get fined. So that could be the alternative cause that the official kind of essentially overlooks. Yes, good. So this is where in flawed questions, in flawed questions, you often can anticipate what the issue is, what the right answer might say. So here you would frame it in a, look, the official here gave us enough information 
to generate two plausible hypotheses to explain the decrease in parking violations. One is that you made the fines higher. But another is that you just open up a parking garage. Like, what do you think is going to happen? Of course, people are going to park in the parking garage. So that's another plausible hypothesis to explain the drop. But then the official jumps to the conclusion that ignores one of those alternative hypotheses. So here, let's fast forward to the answers. What do you think about A? That says, takes a possible effect of a reduction to be a possible cause of that reduction. Right now, I'm breaking up what the heck is a possible effect of a reduction, first of all. So the reduction possibly being the reduction of parking violations, right? What's the effect of that? I don't I don't have that. So like, if I don't know what... What is the effect of that? I guess less revenue. Yeah, but how could he take that possible effect if he doesn't even mention the possible effect? So like already, I think it's descriptively inaccurate because he can't... There's just no way that he can take an effect that he doesn't mention. Yeah. So you see, this is, again, part of hopefully what we're able to demonstrate is not so much just the particulars about this question, you know, this reasoning or whatever. But what I want to demonstrate is that there are just these skills that you use on these questions. And what Chris just did here was he took this abstract claim, takes a possible effect of a reduction, and he made it tangible. He asked himself, like, okay, what are they talking about? Well, what could be a possible effect of a reduction? What's the reduction? The reduction is in parking violations. Well, what could be a possible effect? I guess less fewer cars double parked, less revenue flowing to the city because of fewer fines or fewer tickets having to be issued. But like none of those things are what the argument actually talks about. So that's how we get to the end of the analysis for A. It's just descriptively inaccurate. Right, right. And the specific skill is exactly why I'm able to eliminate answer choices because I'm stopping and pausing and breaking answer choices down and not really moving on to like whatever the second part of the answer choice says, but until I break down what the first part says, because inevitably also the second part kind of has to kind of connects back to the first takes a possible effect of a reduction to be a possible cause of that reduction. But if I don't know the effect in the first place, how can I even know what the cause like, like if it does that? Yeah. So, you know, this is obviously an argument that uses causal reasoning. And lots of arguments that use causal reasoning when attached to a flaw question stem does engage in cause-effect confusion. Something that was a cause, you thought it was an effect, or something that was an effect, you thought it was a cause. Sure, that happens, but not here. It's not happening here. And this is why improvement in logical reasoning is possible, is because you're using the same core sets of skills, and you're just applying it in different domains. We talked about so much already, thinking in terms of phenomenon, hypotheses, grammar analysis. We did a ton of grammar analysis, just revealing that sometimes an answer just talks about a different situation, a different set of, of people or a different set of cases. Here, the skill of making something abstract tangible. Yeah, absolutely. This is definitely the almost one of the most common issues that I work with with students is just breaking up and translating answer choices into something tangible that, that makes sense. Yeah, it's a good drill. It's a really good drill to do. Lastly, let's look at the answer choice E that says fails to establish that the initial decrease in parking violation was not due to the availability of alternative parking spaces. Now, this doesn't use the language of alternate. I don't see alternate. I don't see hypothesis. I don't see alternate cause. I don't see any of those words. But why is this right? Yeah, specifically first determining if it's descriptively accurate or not, it does fail to establish this thing, like the initial decrease in the parking violations, which is the first time the parking violations percent, Right, yeah. the 50% wasn't due to the availability of additional parking spaces. So like, essentially, what if that was the case, essentially? It, it still is introducing that additional parking spaces could be an alternative cause without saying alternative cause. Yeah, you failed to establish that this phenomenon wasn't caused by 
the availability of additional parking spaces. Right. And if you fail to establish that, you're failing to rule out an alternative cause, which is step two. That is a flaw. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. And here, you see, they did the uh, kind of uh, the opposite of, of A, where they didn't speak in high-level abstract language, right? A is all about causes and effects without being specific, whereas E is all about specifics. So you have to be nimble and be able to move in both directions, from the tangible to the specific and from the specific to that back to the abstract, because, well, answers are going to be presented in both manners. Yeah, absolutely. Great. Well, this was fantastic. I had a lot of fun discussing these questions with you. Hopefully students found this helpful. I had a lot of fun, JY. Thank you so much for inviting me to do another podcast again, and I hope to do another one in the future. Yes, absolutely. We'll love to have you back. I hope you found that discussion helpful. If you want more in-depth analyses of these and all other questions from PrepTest90, we've got full video explanations on 7 we actually have a huge library of video explanations. For logical reasoning, we've got videos for every question from PrepTest 17 up to the most recently released PT. For reading comprehension and logic games, we've got videos for every question ever released. And to the best of my knowledge, that's the most complete library of video explanations of LSAT questions available anywhere. And if you're looking for more one-on-one -on -one help, please get in touch with us. We've got a great tutoring team, including Chris, and we'll do a free consultation so you can get a sense of whether tutoring will be a good fit for you. And lastly, on a personal note, it really is such a joy for me to speak to former students and to see how far they've come. Chris, if you're still listening to this, I am so very happy for you. Okay, that's it for this episode. Please take care of yourself, and I'll see you next time.